Okay, so today I want to talk a little bit about respiratory drugs. I'm going to break this podcast up into two parts. The first part, I'm going to talk a little bit of just kind of about some of the background that we would need to know about just respiratory drugs in general. In the second part of this particular podcast, I'm going to have asthma. And then part two, talking more about coughs, colds, um, and allergy medications. So up front, before we even kind of get started, I want to kind of forewarn you that We've got to be very mindful of the medications that we put people on for respiratory ailments because a lot of these drugs have side effects that could be considered performance enhancing. So organizations like the IOC, the International Olympic Committee, Paralympic Committee, um, WADA, or the World Anti-Doping Agency, and then the U.S.'s version of WADA, which is USADA, or the United States Anti-Doping Agency, the NCAA, so on and so forth, have very strict rules and regulations around patients that take these respiratory drugs. So before you even entertain the idea of giving some of these medications, primarily asthma medications, but we need to be mindful of all of them, we want to make sure that we're aware of what the rules and regulations are for the governing bodies that oversee the sport or sports that we work with. All right, the other thing I want to entice you to do is to make sure that you review your respiratory anatomy um, I'm not going to go over that in this podcast um, because you've already been exposed to it, but I do want you to review it. Um, and so just a couple of things that I will point out, though. Um, remember the roles of the respiratory tract. They're kind of twofold. The first is like the upper respiratory uh, system is responsible for that warming and filtering of the air. And the lower respiratory tract is responsible more for that gas exchange. When we talk about receptors of the re- respiratory tract... Remember, as with most drugs, the goal of that medication is to target specific cells or tissues with little to no effect on the rest of the body. And this is certainly no different with the respiratory drugs, but there are a few cases where there might be some similarities in, in common receptor sites and other tissues remote from the respiratory tract that were that could be targeted. Um, and that's where we can get some of these um, side effects that be, could be considered performance enhancing. All right, so we talk about respiratory irritation. We're talking about two components. On either one or both of these components needs to be present for there to be respiratory irritation. And the first one is bronchioconstriction, which is where that narrowing of the lumen space occurs, and or inflammation, where the actual tissue itself becomes uh, inflamed or irritated. A lot of these respiratory medications look at targeting the autonomic nervous system through two specific neurotransmitters, and those are acetylcholine and norepinephrine. Some of these drugs for respiratory uh, target these cholinergic receptors, um, and we call these anticholinergic medications. And we will talk a little bit more extensively about these with allergies and cold meds and COPD medications, um, but, I, but I do want to point out that the receptors that we're looking at primarily for a lot of these respiratory drugs are what we call alpha-1, alpha-2, beta-1, and beta-2. So alpha and beta-1, so our 1 receptors, uh, are responsible for excitation of, of tissues or exciting tissues, whereas our 2s, our beta-2s, alpha-2s, look more at the opposite of relaxing the tissues. More so in this case, the beta-2 has a strong role in, in um, exercise and asthma. So as we kind of go forward, like adrenergic agonists, for example, bind to beta-2 receptor sites and promote the action of this receptor, whereas like anticholinergic drugs may be 
bind more towards those alpha-1, beta-1s to prevent the receptor's actions. Um, <clears throat> so talking about asthma first, there's a few different types of asthma. The three big ones that I'm concerned about as an athletic trainer with my traditional patient uh, setting is first and foremost, just kind of traditional asthma or what we think of as traditional asthma. And that's where we have both inflammation and bronchioconstriction present. Then you may have exercise-induced asthma where the trigger for the asthma is exercise. The, the activity itself becomes a trigger. Uh, and sometimes we'll see that abbreviated as EIA. And then the last one is the exercise-induced bronchioconstriction or EIB. Uh, and that's where we get just bronchioconstriction without inflammation. So all three of these are different and therefore we technically should address them differently. So if we go back to asthma, when we think about an acute asthma attack, what are some of the things that could be potentially happening that are enticing this asthma attack? Well, one of them could be something like an increase in mucus production, in which case that mucus then coats the airway to protect it from, it's a protective mechanism to protect it from irritants. But because it's coating, it's actually decreasing the size of the lumen, right? And that can entice that asthma type response. Um, it also can cause irritation because of, of its holding on to the irritants um, or the mucus itself could be irritating to those, to those lining tissues. Then you have bronchioconstriction as also a protective mechanism that occurs to this decrease in the number of irritants entering the airway because of the size of the lumen. Um, some of the signs and symptoms of asthma, shortness of breath, obviously, um, wheezing. This is a huge thing right here, wheezing. Um, in a true asthma attack, we're only going to hear wheezing on the exhale. We will not hear it on the inhale. So if we're hearing wheezing on the inhale, we've either got a different respiratory pathology occurring or we've got someone who's faking. So remember that wheezing for asthma only occurs on the exhale. Um, other signs and symptoms, cough, headache, stomach cramps, chest tightness. Uh, onset is usually six to eight minutes. Um, if we're talking about exercise induced or exercise being a trigger with about the max um, severity of the symptoms peaking around 15 minutes after we've started activity. Um, and then resolution can take anywhere from 20 to 60 minutes once we've stopped activity. So that can be a long time having a patient with difficulty breathing. So what are some of our treatment options for asthma? Well, I think the one that we think of the most is that inhaler uh, or a metered dose inhaler, an MDI. And specifically, we're talking about albuterol sulfate. Albuterol sulfate is actually a very interesting drug. Um, albuterol has been around for quite some time, um, but now we don't sell albuterol in the United States anymore. We only sell albuterol sulfate. So what's the difference? Well, there's really not much of a difference from a medicinal perspective. There's actually, it's from a legal perspective. So think about to when we were talking about the FDA and how the FDA approves of medications and things like that and how when a company creates a new drug, they can patent it. And then they're the only ones that can sell that, that drug for X amount of time. And so what had happened was when albuterol lost the patent, other companies came in and started making albuterol and it really drove down the cost of albuterol. So it was affordable to the patients. The companies weren't making any money off of it. So 
For those of you that have taken chemistry, you might you know what I'm talking about when I say an accessory group was added on to albuterol, a sulfate group, that from, again, from a medicinal perspective, it doesn't do anything different. It doesn't affect the body. It doesn't change how the body uses albuterol. But what it does do is it changes the chemical composition of the drug. And so therefore, in the eyes of the FDA, it's a new drug. So then a company can come in, patent it, drive up the cost, and charge it until the patent runs off again. Um, and then companies come in and start driving the cost down again because of supply and demand and all that kind of stuff. So we only have albuterol sulfate now. Um, we consider this to be a quote-unquote rescue inhaler. So you hear about someone's rescue inhaler. Um, and we really only use this for acute symptomology. They're having the asthma attack currently occurring. Um, keep in mind, though, that albuterol sulfate can take several minutes before it starts working in some individuals. And its peak efficiency doesn't um, really occur usually until, until about an hour to two hours after we take it. Um, typically speaking, from a dosing perspective, we say one to two pumps. Beyond that, we're just wasting medication. The body can't use really any of the medicine beyond two pumps of the, of the meter dose inhaler. So doing more than that really isn't effective. The only argument to that is, well, if they're truly suffering from an acute asthma attack, for example, their breath, the depth of their breath may not be as deep as normal. So taking subsequent um, hits of the medication, for example, like taking three or four puffs of the medication may still deliver the same amount of medication as they do as if they're taking two hits during um, a normal breathing episode. Um, <clears throat> really, we're only affecting bronchial constriction with these meter dose inhalers or sorry, rather these acute um short-term acting acute response medications were not affecting the inflammation. Um, they do have really quite a, quite a limited number of adverse reactions, which is really great, but it is a little bit of a stimulant. So this is where some of that performance enhancing um, concerns come into play. So things like nervousness, restlessness, trembling, um, because of that upregulation that we're enticing. There could also be some throat irritation or, or airway hypersensitivity occurring because there's an alcohol-based propellant inside the canister for the, um, for the medication. And so we know that alcohol can dry things out. So chronic use or, or repeated use can actually dry out the mucosal uh, membranes of the oral cavity, um, which can cause some, some irritation. And then, you know, the other thing too is prolonged use of this may lead to actual decreased efficacy of the medication. So we really only want to use it when we need to use it. The other side of the coin from a from an asthma management perspective are more of these long-term maintenance type drugs. Um, and these are usually only administered once, maybe twice a day. Uh, they are for persistent asthma requiring inflammatory control. They're not for acute asthma. They aren't going to do anything to acutely treat an a, a asthma attack, for example. So that's not something I should be reaching for. It's not something that I'm going to keep in my kit or in my bag. That's something that I can just keep at home and I'm going to take it, you know, in the morning and morning and evening, whatever it may be. Um, beta adrenergic bronchodilators is an example of one of these maintenance medications. And so what they do is they bind to those beta two receptors, causing relaxation of those bronchial smooth muscles. But as you may recall, Beta-2 receptors are also present in with, with cardiac tissue. So we might see some excitation of cardiac tissue function. So again, now we're increasing cardiac function, which could be considered a performance enhancer. 
Um, examples of these beta adrenergic uh, bronchodilators like proventilin, ventolin, um, are more the short-acting ones. Then we have the, the longer-acting ones like a Cerevent. Um, and Cerevent is one of those discs. So um, I think Cerevent was the teal-colored disc. It slides open on the side. It's got a powder inside, so the patient would inhale the powder once a day, twice a day, whatever the dosing regimen is, um, to help with that long-term maintenance. Now, what we've got to be cognizant of with these, with these powders especially, but even with some of these other respiratory medications, is after they, the patient utilizes these and takes these medications, they need to rinse their mouth out with just, just tap water is fine, nothing fancy, but they need to rinse out because what can happen is um, these patients who don't rinse are actually more susceptible to getting oral cavity fungal infections. And we all know that that would not be a very good thing for our patient to incur, especially considering that the treatment regimen would involve oral antifungal medications, which are long-term and very, very harsh on the liver and the kidney. So we really want to avoid that. Another uh, subclassification of these maintenance drugs uh, are the anticholinergic bronchiodilators. And so these act by reducing airway constriction and inhibiting that cholinergic stimulation by blocking acetylcholine from activation of the receptors. So in turn, what does this do? Well, it causes a sedation response from the central nervous system. It calms them down. It downregulates them. We'll use these a lot with our COPD, our, our chronic obstructive pulmonary disease patients, or chronic bronchitis sufferers um, to help kind of keep them on that down-regulated stage so that they're not as irritated. <clears throat> Another one could be anti-inflammatory asthma medications. So these are kind of broken down into steroidal versus non-steroidal. So... Um, some of the steroidal ones, for example, like glucocorticosteroids, like a hydrocortisone, can actually limit the production of proteins that perpetuate this inflammatory response. So think again about like the COX-1, COX-2 process with the NSAIDs and how those chemical mediators um, can help promote inflammation and things like that. We're, we're trying to stop those types of cycles, not necessarily the COX-1, COX-2 cycles, but we are trying to stop chemical mediation processes of increasing the inflammatory process. Um, we do have an endogenous source of glucocorticosteroids. It's a hormone called cortisol. Um, and so we have, can actually use some medications to actually decrease the amount of these endogenous um, inflammatory glucocorticosteroid um, hormones in the body. And so one of the medications that we can use that with is a steroid um, called a medrol dose pack. You probably have heard it. Um, and basically what this is, is it's a, it's a tapered dose. So what happens is you take, you shock the system by taking like, for example, five pills in a single day and you take them, you can stagger them. So you take five pills over the course of the day on uh, the next day, maybe you only take four of those pills. And then the next day, three pills, two pills, one pill each subsequent days until you're done. The reason that we don't want to start and stop this medication suddenly is because we can actually cut off the endogenous sourcing of cortisol. So the body stops producing its own glucocorticosteroids, um, which can have a lot of detrimental effects. Cortisol is a very important hormone. It has a ton of different important regulations and responsibilities throughout the, the body beyond just what we're talking about in this podcast. So we really want, want to make sure that we're not doing anything drastic like that because it can really have some strong negative outcomes as a result of it. So some of these adverse reactions that we see with some of these anti-inflammatory asthma medications, um, 
there's not that many, honestly. Some people have kind of like hoarseness, uh, the throat or throat irritation. Um, again, they might have that increased risk for that yeast infection. So they, again, you need to make sure that they're rinsing out their mouth or brushing their teeth after they use it. If it's not a pill form, if it's more of like a powdery form. Um, let me talk about the anti, or I'm sorry, the, the non-steroidal medications. Uh, and these work in one of two ways. Either they stabilize mast cells by preventing antibodies and antigens um, from rupturing essentially, uh, which when they rupture, they basically release these inflammatory markers or they modify leukotriene production. So again, think back to that COX-1, COX-2 pathway we looked at with the NSAIDs and we talked about leukotrienes and how we don't really see a lot of effect from NSAIDs on leukotrienes, but we do see a lot of effects from some of the respiratory medications. So we talk about modifying leukotriene production. What's happening is arachidonic acid is converted to leukotrienes, which is causing that airway irritability and vascular permeability. So medications like Accolate or Singular um, are examples of some of these non-steroidal medications. But some of the adverse reactions we see with these non-steroidals are like acne, fluid retention, insomnia, uh, sometimes even poor wound healing. Again, we're decreasing the amount of chemical mediators. Um, so that could mean other subsequent consequences like poor wound healing in this case. Um, some of the less common adverse reactions, um, avascular necrosis, osteoporosis, glaucoma, decreased muscle mass. Again, not common, but they are they are things that we can see. So typically speaking though, our, our meter dose inhalers have way fewer um, side effects, adverse reactions than our oral medications. So that's why when we start to dose somebody for a medication um, for asthma, we're looking at trying to treat them solely with um, like a meter dose inhaler first because it's just a little bit of a safer, more straightforward medication. They're only taking it when they need it versus these long-term maintenance ones, which have a lot more um, uh, systemic effect. So, all right, that's all I got for asthma. We're going to move on to part two um, to look at allergies, colds, and flus.